Hey there, Lisa here. Real quick before we start the show today. If you've listened to this podcast before, you've definitely heard me share what an absolute honor of a lifetime it is to create these safe spaces for my guests to share their stories. I'm so moved every time they tell me how meaningful and sometimes even healing it was to feel held in our conversation. Based on the number of downloads and notes I receive from listeners around the world, I'm guessing this show is making an impact in some of your lives too. Yet, I know for a fact there are more grievers out there who are feeling isolated and alone in their grief, whose grief journey might be made just a little bit easier by listening to this show. If you want to help them find the show, here's what I'm asking of you. After today's episode with Christina, head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief as a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating, and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might need it most. So you get a test, inconclusive. You get a biopsy, inconclusive. And of course, you're waiting between appointments and appointments. So then what was the next sort of step? So then my doctor calls me and says, listen, I can't prove it, but I really think your cancer is back. And if I were you, I would go to MD Anderson and keep following this. Mm. Um, Because right now you were getting treated here in Austin. Exactly. At that point, yeah. Yeah. When I was initially diagnosed, I asked my doctor, like, should I go get a second opinion in MD Anderson? And he said, with stage three of this disease, like, I follow, like, a flow chart um, of how to treat your disease. You can certainly go somewhere else. It won't hurt my ego, but they're going to treat you exactly the same way. Yeah. And that made me feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, But so now it was clear I needed to move to a bigger cancer center to uh, follow up on this. And I got there. Um, I mean, it also took a while to get an appointment, to get an appointment, right, for them to accept me as a patient. Um, all in all, it was, I think, 10 weeks from when there was that first, something looks wonky in your blood work, to, yes, your cancer has spread to your lungs. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver, and through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission I'm really on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. On today's show, I'm bringing you a really special guest. Christina and I sat down together, physically distanced, of course, to hold this very unique conversation. She was so honest and vulnerable as she opened up about the journey she's been on over the past five years. She is just 36. She is a mother to an eight-year-old daughter, she is a wife, and she has stage four colon cancer. She is wise and kind. She offers insights and humor. She expands our understanding of grief. She is such a gift in my life, and I am so grateful to have this chance to introduce her to you as well. 
Hi, I'm Christina Bain. I am a 36-year-old living with chronic, aka incurable, uh, colorectal cancer. I have an 8-year-old daughter and a husband of uh, 12 years. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so, so grateful to have you here, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear this conversation today. Yeah, and Lisa, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I do like to share about uh, my grief because I think it's something that people don't hear about a lot, and I want them to be able to be exposed to it if they're curious. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something so many people and families are going through, and this is an aspect of grief that grief in general is not talked about very much, and I think this is a particular aspect of grief that isn't talked about. So I'm so grateful that you're willing to show up and share and be vulnerable and, and honest and direct with us. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Before we get into discussing what it is that brought you here today, I want to first talk to you a little bit about where you first learn about grief. I talk often about the fact that we are exposed through explicit and implicit messages in our childhood, in our growing up life about what grief is. Oftentimes people say, oh, I don't want to talk to my kids about grief. But the thing is, our kids are all learning grief. We just have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that they're learning? So maybe start a little bit sharing with me if you want to reflect with us today. What are your earliest memories of grief in your growing up life? And sort of who was it that you were grieving? And how were the adults in your life modeling that? What what did that look like? Implicit or explicit behaviors and messages? What do you think you learned about that? Uh, so the first person that I grieved in my life was my paternal grandfather, Grandpa Adrian. Um, and he passed away when I was in seventh grade. I was 11 years old. Um, So I remember going to his funeral, and I saw my dad cry there. Um, And basically, once we got home, I don't think I ever saw any more grief from him. I didn't know in my family had shared that he was sick, like he'd had lymphoma. His death was not out of the blue. Um, But none of the information was shared with me. You know, we went to his funeral, and then we went back to normal life. And that was it? Nobody talked about it? Yeah. Yeah. What do you do you remember at the time feeling confused or curious or did you not give it a thought yourself because nobody else was talking about it like were you having feelings and then feeling maybe confused like why isn't anybody else still talking about grandpa or I mean I just took it as all right this is what we do yeah. um I mean he and I were not super close so I didn't have much like grief of my own relationship with him um Yeah, and I just uh, kind of followed along with what I saw modeled around me. Yeah. When you think about that now as a grown-up person in your 30s and look back at that time, what, what do you think that taught you about grief, whether it's grieving somebody that you have a close relationship with or just grief in general, sort of looking back now from a more mature perspective? I mean, definitely the message is you don't talk about this, that, um, you know, if you grieve, you do it privately. Um, You can show some emotion, you know, at at a big event like a funeral. Um, But even that is like choked crying, not like full-on sobbing. Yeah, sort Um, of reserved. Yeah. Yeah. Very reserved. 
And you mentioned that he had lymphoma, and we're, of course, going to talk about cancer today. Was conversations even about his illness also something that was sort of kept in the quiet or just among adults or prior to his death? Obviously, you said no one was surprised because he did have this Mm -hmm. diagnosis, but how were conversations in general in your family around illness and were there had somebody sat down with you and said, Grandpa has lymphoma and he's likely to die? Or sort of what was the context in your growing up life around that? No, I don't remember. I don't remember anyone telling me that he had lymphoma before he died. Um, We lived about an hour away, so I'm sure that my dad was visiting uh, more often in the, you know, months and weeks preceding his death. Um, But I don't think that I went on any of those visits. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was really kept very separate from me. Um, it was a little different when my maternal grandmother got sick um, just a little bit later, which just says a lot about my parents and how they each handled grief. And my mom was more open about it. Um, my grandmother has Alzheimer's, had Alzheimer's. Um, and so it was a long, slow decline. Um, and, you know, my mom talked about her grief with that. Um, but there was a lot that she kept private that I found out later. Really? Okay. So in some ways, not a totally unusual description, I'm sure, for many family listeners out there thinking about their family members, that maybe their mother was a little more open than their father. But still, generally speaking, folks weren't talking about it. You are a mom. You just shared with us of your eight-year-old. And what's your eight-year-old's name? Marlo. Marlo. So you have an eight-year-old, and we're going to talk a little bit, of course, about the frank conversations that I'm sure you've been having with her now over these past five years. But do you have thoughts now that you're a mother now about how it was that folks talked or didn't talk about grief growing up? Like, can you, did it, did what you learned growing up, I guess, would be my question, shape how you thought about talking to Marlo, either sort of trepidations or or insistence that I'm going to do it differently? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I just approach parenting on the whole differently than my parents did, which is not a complaint. I feel like they did a great job. Um, but, you know, I really, like, we think of Marlo um, as a member of our family with, you know, nearly equal vote. Um, She is a person with opinions and thoughts and, you know, we have to be in charge of safety. You know, there's some stuff that she she doesn't get a vote on. You know, she has to do her homework. She has to take a bath. Um, Though even, you know, the homework part's negotiable if I think it's unreasonable. Um, So, you know, she knows what's going on. Um, and I think maybe also it's different because she's an only child. Um, so yeah. it's just my husband and I and her when we talk about these things. Yeah. Um, you know, she's not distracted by a sibling. She can overhear us and then wants to know what's going on. So um, we do talk to her about grief, about, uh, you know, sadnesses in our lives Um, And just generally feelings that we're feeling, like much more than my parents talk to me about the feelings in their lives. Yeah, and I'm so grateful that you brought up that point, too, about that that the questions and the curiosity that I have when I think about what we learned in our growing up life isn't 
an opportunity to bash or dismiss our parents, and our children will be hopefully better parents than we were, and so on and so forth, or different parents. And so I think the invitation isn't about criticizing. The invitation is, I've learned something, but I didn't even know I learned it, so let me become aware of it, and then make some really informed decisions about whether I want to carry that forward or do I want to do something different. And we can't really know that until we examine what it is we know. Yeah. 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 When we come back, Christina begins taking us on this journey she's been on for the past five years, starting with a frightening diagnosis and the outlook she's had right from the very start. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. So, Christina... If you would share with us, to whatever degree you want the details, um, the news you received, I think we're we're around five years ago right now, Mm -hmm. what led up to you seeing a doctor and receiving the diagnosis, and just walk us a little bit through your thoughts at that time, and and in particular, maybe how how you were talking with your husband and your daughter Mm -hmm. at that time. So about five and a half years ago, I started having this excruciating pain in my tailbone. I would go to bed at night and lay there and just felt like my pelvis was about to break in half. And at the time, I was like lifting heavy weights three times a week. I was running two to three times a week. And so I really just thought that like I was exercising too hard. Um, And I went and saw my doctor and I said, you know, what, what should we do about this? And she said, how about you go see a PT? And so I spent six or eight weeks seeing a physical therapist and, you know, we did lots, strengthened lots of muscles, but it really didn't do anything about the pain. Um, And so I went back and said, all right, what do we try next? Um, And she said, well, you know, this is kind of a wild guess, but I just would sleep better tonight if I referred you to a GI, a gastrointestinal doctor. And so I said, okay. And so I went and saw that doctor, and they agreed, let's do a colonoscopy because, you know, that's one of the best tools they have. Um, And so I had to wait so long. I had to wait like two months. um, Just to get the test. Just to get the test. Wow. Um, And even actually after I had originally scheduled it two months out, then my husband had some business travel, and so I had to push it out another like four weeks um, which was so frustrating, mm. um, but got the test and immediately woke up. I mean, still like coming off of the, um, I know it's not really anesthesia. I know, but the, what is it? The, whatever they do to yeah. knock you out a little bit. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and the doctor said, you know, you have rectal cancer. And it was shocking. I was 31 years old. Um, and I also have to give a huge shout out to my husband because he told my husband right when I came out, and it took me a couple tries to wake up, and so I kept waking up and asking my husband, do we know anything? And he would say, let's wait for the doctor. Mm. Um, he just had to like sit there and hold this awful news and wait for the doctor to officially diagnose me and just over and over be like, let's wait for the doctor. Like, 
I think all the time um, about how hard that must have been for him and how what an amazing thing he did for me. Such a generous gift to set your own fear and pain and shock and everything aside to attend to you in that moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What a loving gift. Yeah. 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 Um, And so then the rest of that day was terrible. You know, my doctor told uh, the GI who diagnosed me, just set me up with um, a couple of doctors and was like, they'll be calling you. But like, I didn't understand her, like what doctor was for what? Why did I have all these doctors? Did it matter what order I saw them in? Um, because I was in no condition to be receiving I mean, you're in this shock. information. And mm-hmm. like literally still kind of high. Yeah. Like legally not allowed to like make financial decisions for another 20 hour, 22 hours. Um, and, in a, and even though your husband wasn't on medication at the time, I'm sure mm-hmm. he was almost in that same state because he was yeah. in a state of shock. So yeah. the doctor is trying to tell, like, give you the litany of orders. And mm-hmm. I think so many listeners are probably nodding their heads right now where they can remember experiences with mm-hmm. spouses or children or parents where the doctor's talking and it's almost like Charlie Brown's teacher through the telephone, you yeah. know, wah, wah, wah. So, so you leave the physician's office or the hospital mm-hmm. that day with a bunch of orders that probably are rattling around in your head and you have no idea what's next. Yeah, and so we went home. And, I mean, this was, uh, I mean, it was August 11th. I know my cancer anniversary. Um, yeah. So it was hot in Austin, Texas, and yeah. our AC was broken that day. Of course, yeah. Um, and so we just, like, sweated together in the guest room and watched wet, hot American summer and cried together. And then we'd get these phone calls and I'd be like, yeah, I'll show up at an appointment anywhere at any time. Had the doctors, can I ask, had the doctors, if you recall, because again, sort of in a state of fuzz at the time, but they gave you the diagnosis, you have rectal cancer. Did that doctor give you any information about treatment, um, survivability, like they didn't sort of... He didn't tell no. me okay. anything. No, he was like, this. I mean, I'm sure he said it politely, but like this is not his deal. Gotcha. Like he diagnoses uh, GI diseases, but like he's not a hematologist. He's okay. not an oncologist. Okay. So, okay. So you're home receiving, being inundated with calls about mm-hmm. this appointment and that, not really sure what you're mm-hmm. going to expect, what to expect when you're showing up at them. Also, by the way, your daughter is... Three at the time? Yeah, she's three. She's in preschool. And so in those early days, while you were sort of probably in between the diagnosis appointment and starting the barrage of what will be, you know, appointment so after much, so yeah. much appointments year after year for these last five years, how, what was the conversation like between you and your husband about what to tell her or not? And how, how did you... I think so many people want to know this because this is our biggest fear as parents is how do we talk about hard things with our kids? Yeah. Well, I mean, the gift of being diagnosed with cancer when your kid is three, at least in our family, the word cancer didn't mean anything to her. She'd never heard it before. She didn't have any negative connotations with it like maybe a 13-year-old does. Yeah. Um, And so we got to make up what that word meant for her. Um, And so, you know, at the time she had asthma. And so when we told her, we said, you know, mom has this new disease called cancer, just like you have a disease called asthma. Um, And so we got a couple um, books about 
uh, cancer. There are um, a ton of them, and there was one that was like a comic book style about uh, colon cancer specifically. And so it shows these kids um, that get shrunk down and get to walk through a colon and see healthy cells and unhealthy cells and see these are the three, you know, kinds of treatments that people with colon cancer receive. Um, Also, I use the words colon cancer and rectal cancer interchangeably. They matter to a doctor, but not to anyone else. And I just don't like saying the word rectal over and over. I don't blame you. Um, As if colon is that much better. (laughs) Hey, it's your cancer. You get to call whatever you Uh want. Yeah. Um, But so we, you know, we just look at books with her. And so one of the books was about... These, you know, kids going uh, through a colon and learning about, you know, there's radiation and there's surgery and there's chemotherapy. Um, and one of the books was about feelings as colors. And you can feel any, you know, color and um, any way you feel is an okay way to feel. Um, and the third one, I think, was just kind of a storybook about, like, from a kid's perspective, you know, how yeah. it was hard when mom was going through cancer treatment. How was it, How you know, you talked about your husband sort of holding his own fear or pain or heartache to wait for you to deliver the news. What was your, what was your experience of talking with Marlo as you were reading these books? How, how was it affecting your own sense of your own diagnosis and processing your own emotions? What was that experience like for you? So um, when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer, which at the time had an 80% five-year survival rate. So I was just very sure that like I was going to do six months of treatment and then I was going to be done and get back to normal. And anyone who has had cancer in their life is laughing right now because there's no (laughs) getting back to normal. It is one of those uh, life events that is like a before and after you yeah. are uh, changed forever yeah. by it. Um, but so I was so sure that everything was going to be fine that I was like, you know, let's just tell her about how hard these six months are going to be. And then uh, I'm not so worried about it. We did immediately get hooked up with this great organization in town called Wonders and Worries. Yeah. Um, and they specialize in um, helping kiddos who have a parent with a serious diagnosis um, and so, you know, we met with a child life specialist who, you know, did chat with us about the best way to phrase things with her. And she went through a program with them for six weeks. She met one-on-one with Miss Michelle and um, learned about, um, like, emotion management mostly. Yeah. Um, I think we used to call it, like, emotional boot camp. Um, but she also came home with, like, a little box with... Um, Medical supplies like a, a hat, like a doctor might wear yeah. in surgery, and like a band aid. And she would love to like play doctor on me, right? And that's such yeah. a great way f- for her to explore all this through play. Yeah, yeah. Um, they did such a great job uh, of helping her. So it was really pretty easy to talk to her about cancer yeah. when she was three and four because. You know, the news was all good. The news, the news in your mind was good. You had this resource in the community, wonders and worries. Mm-hmm. I've I've known about them for a long time from when I helped run CareVox program, and they do such great work. And you had a supportive husband, and you had the outlook that hey, this is just something I'm gonna get treated and get mm-hmm. through. And so I just say that and name that because I think for so many people, 
they maybe don't have a supportive partner or they don't live in a community where there's, you know, organizations like that to support them or et cetera. So, um, yes, yeah. I was super lucky. I had a supportive partner. I also had just a huge support group outside of my partner, just so many friends happy to show up in whatever way we needed, bringing us food. I used to have just like a standing Tuesday night uh, slot open and one friend could come hang out with me um, just to like chat. We, we were so lucky yeah. uh, to have all of the support and access to healthcare uh, that we did during that time. And it sounds like the people in your life, even beyond your family members and the organization, um, were comfortable addressing and, and not hiding from or not sort of trying to dance around your diagnosis. Was that your experience? Did you feel like largely most people were willing to talk with you about it, listen to you? you know, be comfortable having the conversation around it? For the most part. And, you know, I could tell the people that were uncomfortable with it. And, you know, just like naturally, we would spend less time together because I made them feel uncomfortable. And I really don't blame them if they, like, do not have room in their lives right now to hear about my grief. Yeah. Um, Who knows what is going on in their lives um, that make it so that this is not something that they can access or handle right now. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. When we come back, Christina talks about the roller coaster she's been on with each new development, with each new treatment, and about the calming presence her husband Wes offers her each and every step of the way. You know, you just mentioned grief, and one of the one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on the show is um, I think we don't bring enough attention to the fact that people who have this have chronic or terminal diagnoses experience their own grief. Um, And even people who have chronic illness that isn't terminal, of course, have grief for the loss of a life that is no longer. So take us back to that early period, maybe those first six months when in your mind you were thinking, I've got this diagnosis, I'm going to, you know, bust through this six months of treatment, no problem, I'm coming out the other end. Do you think looking back you were already grieving in some way or do you think you had just sort of weren't even acknowledging that there's anything to sort of be lost or grieve over? Yeah, in my mind, um, everything was going to be normal again Yeah. Um, after just a few months. Okay. So you started, what was your first treatment then? And, and Obviously, we're here five years later, but you also introduced yourself saying you're, you're having you know, chronic cancer. And I, I know yeah. you've written a piece recently, which we're going to talk about yeah. so beautifully, about the fact that you're sort of on the last standard treatment now about five years later. So when did it switch from thinking, I'm powering through six months and no problem going mm-hmm. back to normal to hmm, maybe something else is going on? Take us through that. Um, so I started with um, radiation and an oral chemo, just like a pill that I took at home, um, and did that for six weeks. And then there's like a time period that you wait because all of that keeps working, and then surgery at this like optimal time point. So I did that. Um, and based on what they saw in the surgery, like the condition of my cells, they said, we'd like you to do some more chemo. 
Um, and I considered this like cleanup chemo, like just catch those last few cells. Okay. Um, you considered it that, or that's what how they framed it to you? I mean, they said if you were 80 years old, we wouldn't recommend that you do this chemo. Gotcha. But given your age, um, we'd like to just be really sure and have you do this chemo. Okay. And so that was, I think, eight more doses um, of chemo, and it was not fun. No. Um, the chemo uh, made it like that. They all have different bizarre side effects. And that one, um, I could only drink things that were actively warm. Um, if it was room temperature or cold, it felt like my like ice crystals were building up in my throat and I couldn't breathe. Oh. Um, but I finished it and had a last scan, and it said, like, no evidence of metastases, no residual disease. Like, I was in remission. And, and what was that from diagnosis to that news? How... Eight months, six months? Yeah, it was really Something. about six months. Okay, yeah. Um, and then three months later, I go for my first uh, follow-up uh, exam. They do lots of surveillance on uh, post-cancer patients to keep an eye on and make sure you stay post-cancer. Yeah. Um, and at that point, they just you know drew some blood for blood work. But I got a call the next day that something looks kind of fishy in the blood work and they should do some more testing, um, which was really scary to me. And so immediately, so I get on Dr. Google and it says that 50% of people with my disease will have a uh, false uh, negative like this, that it'll show, sorry, false positive yeah, yeah. Uh, like this. So it'll show that um, maybe the disease is back when it's actually not. Okay. So that gave me so much hope. Um, and so we did a scan. I don't even remember what kind, but the scan was inconclusive. Mm. So they said, let's do a biopsy. Um, and so we did a biopsy, but the biopsy was inconclusive. Um, and, and how? And this is days. I mean, this is weeks. Weeks. To months. So you're just hanging on this. Yes. This was one of the worst times in my life um, because, I, you know, I said before, if you have stage three uh, colon cancer, your chance of being alive five years later is 80%. Yeah. At the time, if you had stage four, which is what I would have if the disease um, were back and had spread, then I had an 8% chance. Of, From 80 to 8. Yeah. So, I mean, literally, I would bring my daughter home from preschool and ask her to watch a show and go into my room and close the door and sob and yeah. sob and sob. And how were you and your husband, like, what were the conversations like in this interim period before we get to sort of what that next news was? Were you beginning to talk about what ifs or how were you communicating with each other at the time? He's always really supportive of listening to my fears and my feelings, but he does not get his own feelings worked up until there is actually news. Yeah. He does not get stimulated by a what if. Okay, yeah. Did he give you space to sort of what if yourself? Was that something yes. that you were exploring? Okay. Yeah. yeah, he was, I mean, he was, you know, he didn't shed anything that I was feeling down. Okay. He just yeah. wasn't feeling it himself. So you get a test, inconclusive. You get a biopsy, inconclusive. And, of course, you're waiting between appointments and appointments. So then what yeah. was the next sort of step? So then my doctor calls me and says, listen, I can't prove it, but I really think your cancer is back. And if I were you, I would go to MD Anderson and keep following this. 
Because um, right now you were getting treated here in Austin. Exactly. At that point. Yeah. yeah. When I was initially diagnosed, I asked my doctor, like, should I go get a second opinion in MD Anderson? And he said, with stage three of this disease, like, I follow like a flow chart yeah. um, of how to treat your disease. You can certainly go somewhere else. It won't hurt my ego, but they're going to treat you exactly the same way. Yeah. And that made me feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, but so now it was clear I needed to move to a bigger cancer center yeah. to uh, follow up on this. And I got there. Um, I mean, it also took a while to be, get an appointment, to get an appointment, yeah. right, to, for them to accept me as a patient. Um, all in all, it was, I think, 10 weeks from when there was that first, something looks wonky in your blood work, to, yes, your cancer has spread to your lungs. So that's the first news you got. You went to MD Anderson. And there it was still, like, I did a scan, um, and the doctor wasn't convinced, because apparently, like, the way my colon cancer looked in my lungs was a really unusual presentation. It just normally, like, literally looks different on the pictures. Okay, okay. Um, and, you I mean, these pictures are read by people at MD Anderson. It is someone who reads, like, MRIs of colon cancer patients all day. Right. Like, um, but this was an unusual reading for them. So mine was an unusual reading, and so they wanted to do a biopsy, too. And finally, the biopsy was clear. Yes, there's cancer in my lungs. Um, so at that point, it was operable. So and it was just in one lung. Okay. So they. So this is a metastasis, though. So this, this is not primary yes, lung cancer. This exactly. is your colon cancer that has moved to your lungs. Okay. Yes, and I know that it's really confusing to people. Is that worth taking a minute to talk about? Yeah, please. And and did you, were you surprised? Like, were you think were you sort of like, wait, I thought I had colon cancer. Why is there something in my lung? It was definitely not some. I mean, I'd heard people talk about. Um, you know, like brain cancer in the eye, and yeah. I never really understood it before. Yeah. Um, and so it literally is what used to be cells in my colon have traveled through my body to my lungs and taken up residence in my lungs and are growing there. Gotcha. So they are not lung cells. We don't treat this like lung cancer. We don't treat them like lung cells. You still treat them like colon cells because that's what they are. And it was just in one lung at this point. It was just in one lung. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I only saw my medical oncologist and so they're the ones who give you chemo, your medical oncologist. And I only saw her once, and she was like, go see the surgeon. Um, and so I went and saw the surgeon, um, and he was fantastic. And he cut it all out. He had to cut out about 10% of my uh, like total lung volume. Wow. Um, but you At know, any point along the way where you or your husband saying, you know, should we be doing this? What are the, what were they warning you might be the side effects of of doing? I mean, that se sounds to the layperson cutting out ten percent of your lung volume mm -hmm. sounds pretty like a pretty significant step. How were you processing these decisions, or did it not even feel like a decision? Did it feel just like this is what we have to do? To me, it didn't even feel like a decision. Like yeah. all of my thinking around cancer is motivated by. I want to be along, alive as long as possible to be with my daughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, truly, you know, I'm working in therapy to rephrase to reframe this, but truly, it is how long until I ruin my daughter's life by dying.
you're a parent who's faced loss, which I have, or if you're like Christina and you've faced the very real possibility of your own death, then you've likely wondered the same thing she just shared. What if I ruin my child's life? Having these fears is perfectly normal in the wake of grief or a serious diagnosis. There's certainly no judgment there. I've definitely had them myself, especially in the early days after my husband's death when my daughter was just seven years old. The invitation isn't to just stop having those thoughts already. Instead, it's to pause, to become curious about those automatic thoughts, and to consider a different way of seeing your circumstances. That's really hard to do on your own sometimes, because that voice in your head is pretty darn convincing. I offer one-on-one support, and I'd be honored to help you examine narratives like these and help you gain the skills and confidence you need to rewrite that self-talk that's causing you unnecessary harm in your grief. I call that ditching the shoulds of grief. You can learn more about one-on-one sessions with me by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Christina explores the continuing impact of treatment and results on her own grief, on how she's caring for her mental health, not just her physical health, and how that's transforming how she thinks about her relationship with her daughter and her legacy. So you're, and MD Anderson is several hours away. For those of you who aren't Texans, who don't mm-hmm. don't know our geography down here, it's a couple hours away. Are you kind of holding up uh, residence there, or are you traveling back and forth between each of these appointments? Or um, I'm driving myself back and forth alone. Um, I was very lucky um, the job that I had and still do very, very part-time. Um, we are all remote workers, and one of them happened to live in Houston, half an hour away from MD Anderson. Wow. Um, and so, she, I mean, I literally still have a key to her house. Mm-hmm. She was like, just anytime, come to our house. You can stay here as long as you need. And it, I think it made such a huge difference to my mental health while I was there that I wasn't, like, alone in a hotel. Yeah. But that I would spend, you know, because you have to get a scan, and then they can't see you to talk about the results until the next day because it just takes time for the scan to be read. So I'd get the scan, and then I'd come back to my friend's home. And she had kids, um, one of whom was the same age as mine. Um, their birthdays are just a month apart. Wow. Um, and it was wonderful to like be in a family home and we'd play board games and I'd read to the kids. Um, and you know, like they loved when I came to visit. It felt like a normal, like normalcy, yes. which must have felt like such a gift in a time of just surreal abnormal. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I don't think I was a good house guest. So like, well, I don't think I ever like washed a dish or anything. Yeah. You're going through cancer treatment. So I'm going to go with you were off the hook for being a. Uh huh. And that's what guest. she always <laughs> says. But I just like, I am so appreciative to yeah, yeah. my friend Sarah. Um, yeah. The gift she gave me is just immeasurable. That's incredible. So there you are, MD Anderson. You get the lung surgery. You come out of surgery. They've taken 10% of your lung capacity. Yeah. 
and then what? What are they telling you comes next? What are you? What was your sort of physical, emotional state at the time? So they tell me um, we've got clean margins. We feel really good that we got it all. Um, so see you in three months. I mean, I had a surgical follow-up sooner than that, mm-hmm. like at six or eight weeks. I had a surgical follow-up. Um, and were you sort of at bed rest at that time or...? Um, kind of, no. Okay. I mean, I was allowed to go, and I did go back to work two weeks out from surgery. Wow. Um, because I work from home, and I'm a computer programmer, so I can just sit there and type away. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my company is really cool about, like, if I need to take a nap and then work later in the evening, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so... You know, I, I just wanted to like again. I just wanted get to get back, back to, to normal. normal. Yeah, yep, I was so sure that normal was waiting for me somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this is where I did have to start to grieve um, because I developed chronic pain from that surgery. Mm. Um, that I mean, I hurt right now while we're chatting, mm. even though I am on sixty milligrams of morphine. Wow! Uh, so already at that time, you were grieving because you had a sense, not necessarily that this was going to be terminal, but that Mm -hmm. you were maybe not going to, like, you were having given up this life of health and freedom and pain-freeness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what did that, what did your grief look like or feel like for you at that time? I mean, I felt really betrayed a lot after that surgery because even though, you know, they say that, you know, like I had to sign this consent form with all of these possible risks. Like, I do not feel like this level of pain was suggested to me as a possibility uh, when I was prepping for this. And even little things like I couldn't wear a bra for weeks and weeks and weeks. So the incision, um, my husband describes it as like if you cut off an angel's wing. Okay, yeah. Um, it's like just right around my shoulder blade, but it goes kind of under my underarm, yeah. um, right where uh, basically the most supportive part of a bra sits. Yeah. Um, and so it was much too painful to put a bra on for weeks and weeks. And like I was out in the world but, like, didn't feel like I could be put together like a normal person Um, and was so angry that I felt like I had not been adequately warned about what it was going to be like. And there was no... And what was being told to you about this pain, that it was just post-surgical pain or that this was likely to last forever, or what were you being told about the pain at that time? I was told that for most people it goes away by 6 to 12 months. So even if that was true, which it sounds like because we're fast-forwarding a few years, that isn't the case. Six to 12 months is a long time to live with chronic pain. Yeah. Yeah. So you're 32, 33 at the time by now. Uh Uh-huh. You get the clear margins, Mm -hmm. but you're in pain and beginning to grieve. Yeah. You're telling your daughter, you know, mommy got treatment. Mm -hmm. They said the cancer's gone. You're back to work, even though you're in pain. What's and you're and you're beginning to grieve. Were you naming it back then as grief? Do you think, or is this no. only in retrospect? Okay. This is only in retrospect that yeah. I see um, that I was starting to just feel like different. Yeah, 
in my head at that time, it was different from the other parents. But looking back, it's like different from what I expected myself to be, what I expected myself to be able to do. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, Christine. And I appreciate you sharing that with us today, because I think we think always about grief primarily, of course, to death loss, but we, and I think we're all learning this in the time of COVID-19, is that that we grieve not just what we had and don't have anymore, but we also grieve sort of the unfulfilled promises and dreams that we have. And and for you, it was like this, I'm going to be a certain kind of mom and parenting is going to be a certain way. And at that point, even even though you were quote unquote clear of your cancer, you were grieving that this isn't what I had envisioned. Yeah, like I can't go across the monkey bars with my daughter because it hurts far too much to put the strain on those muscles uh, and that part of my body. And like, I'm a fun, active mom. Yeah, I mean, you were saying to us that you were working out a few days a week and you were quite active prior to that first diagnosis. So this is a major um, quality of life shift for you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's two rounds of treatment, two different rounds of cancer, but we're still a, a few years between between that surgery and, and us sitting here today. What has happened in the intervening years and what has shifted in terms of, of the news from the doctors? Um, so there was another surgery on my other lung. There they only took out 1%, so I'm 11% down. But you don't feel it until you're 30% down. Okay. Like, I've run a half marathon in the interim. Wow. And, okay. like, you know, my lung capacity is not the limiting factor. But you did have a roller coaster again because you walked out of that first lung surgery yeah. all clear, done. You're starting to go up. I mean, you're in pain, but you're probably mm-hmm. in, I imagine, or I will ask you, you're in your mind, you're thinking, okay, disease was behind me. Yeah. Was it the very next three-month follow-up when they said, uh-oh, there's something in the next lung, or did you have a little more time? I had a little more time. I had six months that okay. time. Okay. Um, the three-month appointment was the worst appointment I've ever had with a doctor, though. Tell me. And so that was the one where um, they always do a scan and blood work, um, and you have this blood marker. Uh, mine is called CEA, and... Um, like it's linked to your disease, but it's, um, it's a correlation. Um, so often when this blood marker is up, there is more cancer in your body. And when this blood marker is down, there is less cancer in your body. For me, they're very closely linked. They're less closely linked for other individuals, but we didn't know quite how closely linked they were at that point in time. But so I went for this three-month follow-up after my surgery and um, the scan shows nothing. Scan shows I'm clear, still no cancer. But the blood work does show um, is that my blood marker is going up, my CEA is higher. And I started to cry because the last time I heard that my CEA was higher, it turned out that my cancer was not just back, but it had spread. Yeah. And my doctor told me, don't cry. She said, why are you crying? And I said, because of this blood marker news. And she said, that's not a good indicator. The scan is a good indicator. The scan says you're clear. Don't cry. Oh, my gosh. I have, you know, I swear on the show because the name of the show is Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. But I want to say all the expletives right now on your behalf to the doctor. And for any doctor or nurse who's listening right now, what would you say to them? 
I mean, that's the worst kind of bedside manner. You have to let your patients feel how they feel. Right. Whether you think it's rational or not, feelings are not about being rational. So dismissive. So absolutely harmful. It's the unnecessary harm, right? Yeah. About a year and a half later, I finally got her off my team. Okay. First of all, I just want to pause and say, I'm sorry that happened to you. And I want to pause and speak directly to our listeners and say, I'm sorry that that's probably happened to many of you too. I know it happened, a version of that happened in the long, year-long misdiagnosis of my husband and the way the doctors spoke to us. So it's not okay. And we have to, we have to do better. We have to do better. So clearly, you are right, the blood, mar- the blood markers... Mm-hmm. Being elevated were a sign of something because then at six months, what did you find out? Yeah, we found out that um, there was cancer in the other lung. Uh, so the left lung was the first surgery. So uh, second uh, surgery is in my right lung because that's where they see cancer. Um, and right around this, t- while I'm recovering from this, my father-in-law dies from lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, he lapped me. Or I left him. I never know how to say it. I know. But like he was diagnosed and died within the time gotcha. that I was sick. Okay. Um, and that was when my daughter started getting really upset about cancer because she realized people can die from cancer. Yeah. Um, and she was five or six at the time. Yeah, she yeah. was five. Yeah. Um, yeah. And where I just like had a really hard time coping uh, with his death. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in very selfish ways. I mean, well, he, it's he was such a, a reminder. Yeah. 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 Right. It feels, I don't know if I would dangerous. use the word selfish. You, you get to, you get to sort of make that connection between him and you, yeah. you know, but yeah, yeah. It just felt too close to home. Yeah. Like even though his death has nothing to do with my cancer, it makes me feel more likely to die. Yeah. And you're going through this experience of, wait, what does his cancer and his death mean for me? You're watching your daughter begin to unravel, which is a completely normal response, by the way, to all this scary grown-up news that's happening around her. And I imagine your husband is in the midst of deep grief because he's just lost his father. Yeah. Were you all seeking external support at that time? How were you? Because you were each having your own different relationship with grief in a way at that time. How are you navigating that time? Um, Yeah, my daughter was going and seeing a play therapist, uh, the lovely Miss Doran, um, and I had my own therapist, um, and my husband just talked to his brothers a lot. Okay. He's family support, yeah. Yeah. So you got this news, your father-in-law dies, and you've just finished having your second lung surgery. So this is, you know, metastasis number two. Yeah. Oh, and while I'm there, I get a phone call from a panicked nurse um, who is like, because I'd gone to see my OBGYN and they had done blood work. And she was like, listen, this blood marker is super high. Like you can't ignore this. You need to go see someone as soon as you get back home. And it was a different blood marker, but there are often multiple blood markers um, that rise and fall. Okay. Um, as the disease is mm-hmm. present. Okay. Right. And this is also one that is common in, I guess, some gynecological cancers, which is why they look at it. Okay. Um, but right, it was not the email I wanted to get. Like I think it was maybe literally the morning of the funeral. 
yeah, so then I still had to wait a couple weeks. Like, I knew, um, like, the my own personal cancer blog is called Bearing the Weight because that's, and it's B-E-A-R, like, yeah. holding yeah. the weight. Yeah. Um, oh, no, and weight, like, W-A-I-T. A-I-T. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you're, you do have to wait, right? Like, I get this terrifying phone call, but I know I just have to wait to my scan. My doctors are going to say... Nothing's going to happen in the next six weeks that makes a difference in your outcomes. You just have to wait for your scans. What does the waiting look like for you? How are you managing your nervous system? How are you, how are you navigating your days? What, what were the tools that you were using at that time? Um, food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mostly food yeah. Um, and talking to my therapist. Yeah. Were you... And you were in so much pain, you probably weren't moving your body very much or, you know. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. So you get to that scan. Yep. And what happens? Because I know sort of fast forward to our us sitting here today in the studio, you yeah. announced that you basically said it's chronic cancer and you're on your last treatment. So yeah. was there a significant shift at that next appointment? That or So that was, I'm pretty sure that's the appointment where they told me it was inoperable. It's tough to remember, like, five years and keep the specific yeah. years straight. But that after that, I think yeah, they must have found it was inoperable then. It, it was back in your lungs again? or was It was it back in, in okay. my lungs, and it was, um, yeah, they couldn't cut it out, so it was time to start chemo. And so that was a year and a half in, and I've basically been on chemo consistently since then. So for three and a half years, you've been on chemo-ish? Three? Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, and so we actually just found out last week I had scans to see how well this last approved treatment was uh, doing at killing my cancer. And the answer was not a good job. Um, my cancer has grown. Um, so I can't take that medication anymore. So I've now progressed on or my cancer has grown on every existing approved medication for my cancer. So the only option I have left if I want to get treatment is a clinical trial. Um, and I also asked my doctors this week, like, you know, what, what if we did nothing? If we did yeah. no further treatment, what kind of timeline am I looking at? Um, and I was shocked to hear that the answer is months. So I've been working through that this week. Yeah. I just want to hold, hold space for you for a minute. Yeah. I just really, and, you know, they mean months as the range as opposed to years. Yeah. Um, but I just had no idea. It's so dissonant from how my body feels. I don't feel the cancer in my lungs ever. Okay. Um, sort of in your phys- sorry embodied life right now, it doesn't feel, even though you've been on cancer drugs and pain meds because mm-hmm. your back is still in pain, you still, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's a disconnect, it's a dissonance. Right. I mean, like I have this pain and that, I mean, like, technically some of that is from my cancer because I also have cancer in my ribs. 
um, like right also where that incision is. So, so it's maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that, like in my ribs, which is where there are all these little lesions, like they don't affect my breathing or my health in any way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I go see a lot of doctors because there's a lot of like peripheral damage from five years of treatment. Um, so I have like a heart condition now and who knows if I've always had it or not, but we found it now. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. So this is a week. We're maybe a week out from, from hearing this news. Was your husband with you at the time when you heard the news? No, I got both of it, both pieces of news I got alone. And so what has the conversation been with you and your husband since then? And how are you making sense of this right now at this moment? Um, I mean, mostly a lot of crying. Even he is finally crying and having his emotions activated, recognizing that it really is. is emergency time. Have you thought much about whether you are going to be working with your doctors to pursue the clinical trials or to just live your life as it is for now? Or have you not made that decision yet? I have. I feel very strongly that I'm not done. Um, like, that's just like the truth in my heart yeah. is that I'm not done. Yeah. Um, so for me, the only option is a clinical trial. And if I didn't have a husband and if I didn't have a kid, I might make a really different choice right now. Yeah. But I have these people that are really important to me to live for. Yeah. Um, so um, I actually already have an appointment set up next week with one of the trial teams. Um, there are no options for me in Austin, so I'm going to have to travel for the trial. Is that back at MD Anderson or even further? Um, nothing further. Um, there's a place in San Antonio that runs oh. phase one clinical trials. Okay. Um, and that's what we're looking for for me. Um, so I have an appointment there on Tuesday of next week. Okay. And I'm waiting to hear back from MD Anderson. Um, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved in getting to see the clinical trial team. But to start the bureaucracy going. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. When we come back, Christina shares some remarkable stories, including how and why she has invested so much precious time over the past five years helping to bring a patient voice to guide the creation of a very unique cancer care center. You will also hear about the beautiful discoveries she's making about her lifelong hobby of sewing and quilting and the meaning-making involved in these creative endeavors. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Christina Bain. You know, one of the things that I learned about you, I learned about you from our mutual friends over at the Livestrong Cancer Institute here at the University of Texas Dell Medical School, the longest title of an organization <laughs> and entity ever. And uh, my friends over there, Robin and Becca, let me know that you have been involved in the Institute for quite some time. 
Tell me a little bit about how that got started and why you are passionate about um, being involved in and telling your story. Yeah, I've been working with them since before the clinic was open. Yeah. Um, started, yeah, it's been a couple years. Um, I mean, Becca wrote me an email and said, do you want to be on this board and help design a cancer program or cancer clinic? And like, I feel like, how can you say no to that? Yeah. Like, you have the chance. I mean, every survivor, every cancer survivor I know um, says, like, they have absolutely had horrific experiences. Everybody has at least one that they would like to make sure that nobody else ever has to go through again. Um, And so we're all so happy to do anything we can because, I mean, on its own, cancer is going to be traumatic. And anything we can do so that you don't have an appointment where your doctor tells you not to cry right. or so that you're not a 19-year-old whose doctor feels uncomfortable talking to you about sex and so they don't warn you that you will be rendered infertile by your treatment and don't talk to you about your other options. The unnecessary harm that happens, um, yeah, through the medical system. Do you think, how have you seen your interactions with um, being on the board and being able to have a voice and help shape sort of cancer care and cancer treatment for families well beyond, you know, your lifetime. Yeah. How, what do you think that has offered you? I mean, you're giving such a gift to people you may never meet, of course, and you're sort of leaving a legacy in that way. But has that experience of being a part of that on the board and being able to help shape the culture there, what has that offered you, do you think, over this past, sounds like two or three years? I mean, it has been amazingly fulfilling. Like, I really, I mean, actually, I say that I jumped at the email, but honestly, I thought really hard about it because I make very few commitments on my time. Yeah. I want my time to be for my family. Yeah. Um, but this uh, opportunity, I was like, I, I do think I want to try it. Um, and it has just been like so fulfilling. I never expected to get so much out of it, but um, I've helped hire people. Um, You know, we sat in on interviews um, and I mean, I have switched my care now to the Livestrong Cancer Institute. Um, And a big part of it is this one nurse that I interviewed and I was like, I want her on my team. And then once the clinic opened, I could have her on my team. Incredible. Um, But we help, you know, when you go to a doctor's appointment and you have to like answer questions about like, how have you been feeling and sleeping and blah, blah, blah. Like they let us figure out what those questions are based on like, what are the important things to cancer patients for them to be tracking and talking to us about? That's so huge. Yeah. And really thinking about how that evaluation or how those, you know, surveys are really informing the doctors of what they actually need to know. Yeah. yeah about the patient's experience. Yeah. And also I imagine eliciting being asked in a specific enough way that the patient feels able to answer the questions the way they need to. Yeah. Yeah. That's a remarkable story, and um, we really are lucky here in Austin, Texas, to have so many different organizations, including um, the Livestrong Cancer Institute, um, their care model. So you talked a little bit before about this time. Of course, you're limiting your time and how you're spending your time, which I want to pause, by the way, and say thank you for allowing me to 
steal a little bit of your time here today. But one of the things you talked about limiting your abilities and your times and when you're, where you spend your energy, I know for a fact because I read your absolutely incredible article, which is called What to Make When You're Dying. Um, I'm going to drop the link to the article in the show notes. So when you're listening at the end of the show, you can check it out. But you talked very beautifully and sort of metaphorically and philosophically, existentially, everything about your um, hobby or passion of sewing and quilting and how that journey of quilting and sewing along your illness, what that sort of taught you. Can you share a little bit without, people are going to read the article anyways, but just share a little bit about what brought you to write that article and and what do you think are kind of the salient points that you came to understand as you wrote it? I mean, I think the title kind of tells you to a big extent what it's about. And um, I did not know the answer to that question before I started writing the article. I just pitched um, the title to uh, the uh, sewing magazine, the digital sewing magazine, Seamwork, where it's published. Um, and they said, sounds great. Write it up. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, no, now I have to write it up. <laughs> um, I've been in that spot before. Yeah. Uh-huh. But somehow, obviously, yeah. it seems as the reader that you really, you take us along your own discovery yeah. Um, as a writer, and you really bring us with you as you sort of unpacked and discovered things. What do you think are some of the things that you discovered along the way as you were writing that? So one of the things I learned uh, as I thought about this is that impact is going to matter more than intention to my family. I want to leave, I want to sew my daughter an entire wardrobe for her to have um, from now until she's, you know, 18 years old. But uh, those clothes will have a meaning to her um, as mom made them and uh, the meaning may not be what I meant. They may feel like a judgment of who I expected her to be, um, like physically in her size and in her preferences and in her beliefs. Um, and I don't want her, I don't want to leave what to me comes from a gift, but to her may not feel like a kindness or there may be guilt bombs in her closet that she feels like she should wear because mom made them. My dad, mom made them. I have to wear them, but I hate them. Yeah. Um, Like I don't want them to be a burden to her. Um, And so really trying to be mindful of how can I... I want to leave physical items behind for them because I have the skill to sew. And I think that there are ways for it to be meaningful um, to me and to them. Um, But to be really thoughtful about um, spending my time on objects that will uh, enrich their lives and not feel like, uh, you know, promises uh, they have to keep to me. Yeah. That's such a beautifully unselfish way to be thinking about it. I think for so many of us, no one would judge you for sewing whatever the heck you want to sew because you're the one that this, you know, you're doing this for, that this is your time and that this can be therapeutic for you. So to be thinking about what is the impact on your daughter and maybe your husband 
um, on the maybe one side of this beautiful gift of having this physical thing that you created that sort of ties you, ties your daughter to you, but also, as you said, thinking through a little bit that there may be points along her growing up life that it feels more of a burden than a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Although I have to admit, so I'm also I'm so I'm sewing a quilt for my husband right now, um, and while we have had this discussion before, and I strongly encourage him to marry again after I'm gone, if he has the desire to, um, I have told him that uh, anyone who wants him to put this specific quilt away, that's a deal breaker, and he cannot marry her. And he was like, "Of course it would be. <laughs> of course it would be." Mm-hmm. bringing humor into your humor and directness and having these real conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So your daughter is eight. Is she part of your sewing experience? Is she learning? Does she know even at some level, maybe age appropriate level, that you are trying to create and make things for her? Not necessarily because you believe that you may not be here for her whole growing up life, but does she know this is a part of that you're on this project right now? What's her experience with your sewing? Um, I mean, I had the day of my dreams last summer when she came to me one day and was like, Mom, let's sew together. And in just a morning, like, we sewed her a little tank top, and she loves wearing it Mm because it feels so special because she made it. But she's never wanted to sew with me since then, (laughs) and I'm not going to push it. Um, But we also, this summer, she designed a dress. Um, I have a sewing book that is like building blocks of making dresses for little girls. Um, And so she just could point to, I want this bodice and I want this skirt and I want these pockets um, and I want this kind of hem. And so, and then the book shows you, you know, like literally how to draft the patterns for all those specific pieces and put them together. So we did that, and I have all of the fabric cut out. I just need to sew it together yeah. and make her her little dream dress. That's amazing. So even in your time together now, you guys are sort of bonding and connecting mm-hmm. over this sewing and this practice. Yeah, and she sees that I'm making dad a quilt. And so, of course, she's like, when is mine? Yeah. And I've told her that it's up next. Um, and, I, you know, I got some fabric to make a baby quilt for her before she was born. But I realize, like, it doesn't. If she doesn't want that in her quilt, then yeah. we can let that be. Let that go, yeah. Yeah, and I'll buy new material for a quilt for her. That's incredible. What a beautiful gift. I know we're going to wrap up our conversation here in the next few minutes, but I wanted to close today by asking you if you've given any thought to the grief, the anticipatory grief that your husband, and maybe to a lesser degree your daughter, because she doesn't quite understand maybe the magnitude of your diagnosis at this point. Have you thought a little bit about how you're living your lives now and what that, how that might shape the grief that they will experience someday, hopefully many, many years from now when you're gone? Have you thought a little bit about that or talked even with your husband about that? Yeah, my husband and I are really, really open about this stuff. Uh, we've decided that we just need to be super open about it all along the way. Yeah. Uh, so um, we've cried together over my worries about how alone he will feel once our daughter goes to college, if I'm not there with him. Yeah. Um Will that be a really sad and lonely part of his life? Is a really big worry of mine, a big 
source of grief for me. Yeah. You know, he tells me he's thought about it, and, um, and that's when I always am like, you can totally marry somebody else. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but we've talked about that. I mean, I think one of the things that we've really been doing this summer, and it was mostly to pass the time during COVID, but I think will serve us well um, as, you know, the family transitions to me being home but not being able to participate in everything because of how sick I am to me um, dying is we have a lot of traditions of, Mm -hmm. like, Friday night family movie, Saturday afternoon we do family book club, Sunday we do midday movie that grown-up gets to pick, and it's, like, usually, like, a classic from our childhood that we want to expose our daughter to. Right. Um, and I think having these, uh, like, traditions to fall back on, and we have, like, huge Christmas traditions. I've knit this amazing Advent calendar, um, and we put activities. They're each little, like, separately. They're 24 different patterns and little mini stockings. Incredible. Um, and so then uh, you put a slip of an activity in uh, for each day. And this year, my daughter, or I guess last year, my daughter got to help um, decide what the activities were, mm. and she loved it. So yeah. I mean, maybe that's something she'll get to take on yeah. um, and that can be a way that she can maintain all those traditions. Like, I really believe traditions are a way to keep memories alive, um, and I think it's a process grief to laugh and cry about, yeah. you know, Remember doing this thing with mom. Remember when mom picked that midday movie on Sunday that I really did not like. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I absolutely think these traditions um, and you guys having the foresight to understand the power of traditions, of course, for many of us, when we lose somebody, particularly when we lose somebody and didn't know it was coming, we never quite really make effort or think about the value of how these traditions um, will serve us long after those relationships have um, transitioned. So, yeah, I think that's a beautiful um, gift and a weird gift, especially of COVID. Like, who thinks of COVID as bringing us any gifts? But yeah, it sounds like this gift of really building traditions is lining up really beautifully for how your family is going to navigate this season. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much for joining me today, Christina. I am honored, as I always am with every guest, but I feel especially honored today that you used your limited time um, to have this conversation with me and to share your wisdom with all of our listeners today. Thank you so much for being here. It was really my pleasure. I'm just um, surprisingly happy to talk about grief um, and share my experiences Um, Yeah, I think that we need to talk about it more. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Y'all, Christina's honesty, generosity, authenticity are just, well, three of the qualities that touched me most. Since we recorded our conversation earlier this fall, I can't stop thinking about the important reminders about hope, about honest conversations, about the importance of patient-centered care, and even how humor goes a long way, even and perhaps especially in difficult times. 
I wonder if she made you think about what traditions are important in your family or how you might adapt them or create new ones as we navigate through this time of the pandemic. I know that's been on my mind a whole lot. I also wanted to share a brief update. I just spoke with Christina today, November 8th, 2020. She shared that she is now officially in that clinical trial at MD Anderson and will have her first scan to see how it's going in mid-December. She admitted things seem to be more down than up, but she is focusing her energy on the basics of caring for herself and her family. You can find the link to the beautiful article she wrote, What to Make When You're Dying, along with her blog, Bearing the Weight, in the show notes for today's episode. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. Thank you for listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>